This is episode 168 of the A News podcast, a digest on anarchist activity, ideas, and conversations from the previous week on anarchistnews.org. We hope it's useful to and fun for anarchists and the anarcho-curious. Give us feedback and constructive criticism by email at podcast at anarchistnews.org. For more information and usually some good commentary, see you at your favorite non-sectarian anarchist site with commentary anarchistnews.org. Waiting for Revolution by Hakim Bey. How is it that the world turned upside down always manages to rate itself? Why does reaction always follow revolution like seasons in hell? Uprising, or the Latin form insurrection, are words used by historians to label failed revolutions, movements which do not match the expected curve, the consensus-approved trajectory. Revolution, reaction, betrayal, the founding of a stronger and even more oppressive state, the turning of the wheel, the return of history again and again to its highest form, jackboot on the face of humanity forever. By failing to follow this curve, the uprising suggests the possibility of a movement outside and beyond the Hegelian spiral of that progress, which is secretly nothing more than a vicious circle. Surgo, rise up, surge. Insurgo, rise up, raise oneself up. A bootstrap operation. A goodbye to that wretched parody of the karmic round, historical revolutionary futility. The slogan revolution has mutated from toxin to toxin, a malign pseudo-gnostic fate trap, a nightmare where no matter how we struggle, we never escape that evil aeon that incubus the state, one state after another, every heaven ruled by yet one more evil angel. If history is time as it claims to be, then the uprising is a moment that springs up and out of time, violates the law of history. If the state is history as it claims to be, then the insurrection is the forbidden moment, an unforgivable denial of the dialectic. Shimming up the pole and out of the smoke hole, a shaman's maneuver carried out at an impossible angle to the universe. History says the revolution attains permanence or at least duration when the uprising is temporary. In this sense, an uprising is like a peak experience as opposed to the standard of ordinary consciousness and experience. Like festivals, uprisings cannot happen every day, otherwise they would not be non-ordinary. But such moments of intensity give shape and meaning to the entirety of a life. The shaman returns, you can't stay up on the roof forever, but things have changed, shifts and integrations have occurred, a difference is made. You will argue that this is a council of despair, what of the anarchist dream, the stateless state, the commune, the autonomous zone with duration, a free society, a free culture? Are we to abandon that hope in return for some existentialist act gratuit? The point is not to change consciousness, but to change the world. I accept this as a fair criticism. I make two rejoinders nevertheless. First, revolution has never yet resulted in achieving this dream. The vision comes to life in the moment of an uprising, but as soon as the revolution triumphs and the state returns, the dream and the ideal are already betrayed. I have not given up hope or even expectation of change, but I distrust the word revolution. Second, if we replace the revolutionary approach with the concept of insurrection blossoming spontaneously into anarchist culture, our own particular historical situation is not propitious for such a vast undertaking. Absolutely nothing but a feudal martyrdom could possibly result now from a head-on collision with the terminal state, the mega-corporate information state, the empire of spectacle and simulation. Its guns are all pointed at us while our meager weaponry finds nothing to aim at but a hysteresis, a rigid vacuity, a spook capable of smothering every spark in an ectoplasm of information, a society of capitulation ruled by the image of the cop and the absorbent eye of the TV screen. 
In short, we're not touting the Taz as an exclusive end in itself, replacing all other forms of organization, tactics, and goals. We recommend it because it can provide the quality of enchantment associated with the uprising without necessarily leading to violence and martyrdom. The Taz is like an uprising which does not engage directly with the state, a guerrilla operation which liberates an area of land, of time, of imagination, and then dissolves itself to reform elsewhere, elsewhen, before the state can crush it. Because the state is concerned primarily with simulation rather than substance, the Taz can occupy these areas clandestinely and carry on its festal purposes for quite a while in relative peace. Perhaps certain small Tazes have lasted whole lifetimes because they went unnoticed, like hillbilly enclaves, because they never intersected with the spectacle, never appeared outside that real life which is invisible to the agents of simulation. Babylon takes its abstractions for realities. Precisely within this margin of error, the Taz can come into existence. Getting the Taz started may involve tactics of violence and defense, but its greatest strength lies in its invisibility. The state cannot recognize it because history has no definition of it. As soon as the Taz is named, represented, mediated, it must vanish. It will vanish, leaving behind it an empty husk, only to spring up again somewhere else, once again invisible because undefinable in terms of the spectacle. The Taz is thus a perfect tactic for an era in which the state is omnipresent and all-powerful and yet simultaneously riddled with cracks and vacancies. And because the Taz is a microcosm of that anarchist dream of a free culture, I can think of no better tactic by which to work toward the goal while at the same time experiencing some of its benefits here and now. In sum, realism demands not only that we give up waiting for the revolution, but also that we give up wanting it. Uprising, yes, as often as possible and even at the risk of violence. The spasming of the simulated state will be spectacular, but in most cases the best and most radical tactic will be to refuse to engage in spectacular violence, to withdraw from the area of simulation, to disappear. The Taz is an encampment of guerrilla ontologists. Strike and run away. Keep moving the entire tribe, even if it's only data in the web. The Taz must be capable of defense, but both the strike and the defense should, if possible, evade the violence of the state, which is no longer a meaningful violence. The strike is made at structures of control, essentially at ideas. The defense is invisibility or martial Their nomadic war machine conquers without being noticed and moves on before the map can be adjusted. As to the future, only the autonomous can plan autonomy, organize for it, create it. It's a bootstrap operation. The first step is somewhat akin to Satori, the realization that the Taz begins with a simple act of realization. We've been obsessed with cops since the beginning, but the Rosers of yore played bumbling fools. Keystone cops, car 54, where are you? Booby bobbies set up for Fatty Arbuckle or Buster Keaton to squash and deflate. But in the ideal drama of the 80s... What's new this week? You ask why your cities are burning, from Nasal Pickens, who stands out in his field. Lyrics to a statement for the Times. Challenge accepted. Quote, you ask why your cities are burning? 20, 20 generations, generations of bondage, bondage of, of slavery, slavery, of degradation. degradation. And, and you, you ask why your cities are burning? 20, 20 generations of genocide, of stolen land, of dehumanization. And you ask why your cities are burning? 20 generations of lies, of broken promises, of broken backs. And you ask why your cities are burning? Unquote. Moving on. Anarchy and COVID-19 from Anarchist Writers by Anarcho. 
Here, a red anarchist explains, with the assistance of Kropotkin and Malatesta, how a decentralized anarchist society, which would maintain many of the institutions we have today, but run by disinterested volunteers, would handle a pandemic better than the current society would and is. Quote, This network of associations, based on community, economic, and scientific interests, would exist without the bureaucrats, politicians, and capitalists, and would be the basis for a response to such a crisis in a free society. Nor would we have a society in which education is skewed to enrich some and marginalize the many, and so we would have an educated and well-informed population with a better grasp of science, as everyone would combine brain work and manual work, to use Kropotkin's expression from fields, factories, and workshops. A free society with a better educated and more informed population would ensure the science is understood and followed. This means that calls for a lockdown from recognized experts in the field will be more easily believed, understood, and agreed, unquote. It's a lovely picture for anyone who's never read Foucault. Ersian has a well-thought-out and explicit comment on this thread. You know, if Foucault is too shorthand for you or whatever. Riotous Ecology, from Anon, by Seaweed, apparently. A lovely piece on riots as a necessary part of the ecosystem, a natural response to clear away the detritus that keeps us from living better lives. Quote, there is no future if we don't stop adapting to capitalism and start adapting to nature. And every Molotov throne has a message inside the bottle that reads, I am sick of adapting to capitalism, of adapting to a world of bosses and landlords and elites, of supremacist thinking, of pavement and concrete and vistas denuded of life. Sure, it might not explicitly state that the preference is to adapt to nature, but if all coercion is removed, don't we end up living closer to the way we've evolved, closer to nature? And so I make this connection between ecology and riots, between making space for healing and regeneration and the arson of the present insurrection." Unquote. Renzo Novatore et Bruno Filippi translations from Distinctively Dionysi. The second week of announcements from this project, this time offering booklets of brand new translations of Novatore and Filippi, noted egoist anarchist rebels and poet dudes. Quote, those who have not descended at least once into the abyss of the darkest sorrow or amidst the delirium of the blackest despair, who have not courageously spoken face to face with death to then find in crime the supreme inspiration of the moment that exalts and purifies the strong, heroic victim who loves, who craves, who desires, I am certain they will never understand me. Anyone who has spent his pitiful existence in the environmental mud of common and vulgar mediocrity, where the resigned, powerless moles vegetate, emasculated by the cowardly conventionalism, cannot understand, even if dressed in red, the satanic cry of those who want to bloodily bite the pure perverse lip of free life unchained, unquote. <laughs> from Ferguson to Minneapolis, from CrimeThink. A mural in black and white memorializes some tiny fraction of those who have been killed through police violence and or neglect. Well-known black victims are interspersed with a few anarchist ones in a tactic that gives me mixed feelings. Anyway, this thread gives background thumbnails on how each named person was killed. Free Michael Kimball raised the walls from june11.noblogs.org. Folks attended to June 11th, International Day of Solidarity with Long-Term Anarchist Prisoners, by marching in Bloomington, Indiana against police brutality and informing people about Michael Kimball. Quote, In 1987, Michael was sentenced to life in prison for the self-defense killing of a racist homophobe who attacked him and a friend. 
By the 90s, Michael was a politicized prison rebel, moving toward an explicitly anarchist position that rejected any form of state power. His anarchy has found expression in individual acts of rebellion against the prison authorities, defense of other prisoners under attack, queer self-defense initiatives, and active involvement in prison uprisings. Michael was present in the C-Dorm of Holman Prison during the audacious riots of 2016, in which prisoners took over the dorm, setting fires, and refusing any conciliation with the prison regime, unquote. He would be a great person to write in your socially distanced prisoner writing sessions. You're doing one of those this week, right? Black and racialized anarchists on the May 31st demonstration, from ContraPoint, a site in French and English that says this about itself. ContraPoint is a collaborative web platform for the dissemination of revolutionary, autonomous, and anti-authoritarian information, discourses, and practices. This project was born from a desire to allow different groups, collectives, and trends to share ideas and practices, to take the time to think about the present, and to refine strategies to wreck this world and build those that will follow. This platform wishes to participate in the effort to redefine a revolutionary horizon and to live up to our common intelligence. It is an invitation to invest in the heterogeneity and diversity of current inclinations in the struggle, focusing on alliance and connection rather than centralization, unquote. So that description, along with the very nice musical metaphor, sounds very good, emphasizing as it does heterogeneity. This submission is a list of recommendations, including restorative justice, removal of police forces, autonomous mutual aid mechanisms that render police obsolete, not only quoting or attending to liberal voices of people of color, etc. Fairly benign. Racialized is an awkward usage, perhaps for a word that doesn't translate, but whatever, let's not nitpick here. Non-exhaustive protocols for common injuries from police weapons, from CrimeThink, an English translation of a French document from the Zad Battles. Quote, what follows is not a do-it-yourself guide. Your local area or nearby large city likely has a street medic collective. Find them. Medic collectives sometimes do trainings for new medics. Many of the practices detailed here require extensive knowledge and experience and can really hurt someone if done wrong. Please don't jeopardize the health of others by claiming experience you don't have or trying to practice outside of your scope, unquote. There's a list of things to read to find out more, and then the injuries list including chemical agents, explosive devices, rubber bullets, and including varying degrees of intensity, what to look for, when to go to a professional, etc. No comments on this thread at all. No medics or healthcare workers in the house? Everyone's in the street, I guess. Statement from Marius Mason's lawyer, Moira. From june11.noblogs.org. Marius was unable to finish writing a piece in time for June 11, so this is from his lawyer. Quote, Marius is an example of someone suffering unduly at the hands of a government that was more interested in punishing him under the rubric of terrorism than in ending the atrocities against the environment that he has spent his life trying to correct. And now, once again, he is watching the state manufacture an imaginary threat, Antifa. No matter that Trump lacks any authority to designate Antifa a, ter a terrorist threat in any legally meaningful way, his announcement will function to broadcast to law enforcement, prosecutors, judges, and juries that they may severely punish people not only for their conduct, but for their political beliefs, unquote. June 11th, a few notes on this world for Marius Mason, June 11th, in solidarity. From june11.noblogs.org. <clears throat> Links to a song, a mixtape, and a video from Marius. Quote, a note by non-Servium for the mixtape. We have a strong relationship of hate with the prison complex, not only because most of the members of our musical collective have visited its cells on occasion, but also because it is the reason why this world of greed and control that we despise and suffer from keeps on existing. 
Society needs prisons to instill the fear of breaking the law in all of its rules. Marius Mason was convicted for breaking the rules. Like any anarchist with a practical sense of theory and courage, therefore Marius needs all our solidarity. Because this world he's still fighting against from inside the walls is everywhere, there is no escape from it, and escape could never be enough anyway. This fucking world has to burn, and everything else is poetry." Unquote. Get in the Zone, a report from the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, from its going down. A first-person account of events in Seattle, and specifically on Capitol Hill, a recently very gentrified neighborhood in Seattle. Last week, the police left their Capitol Hill precinct, allowing for the announcement of a Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ, which is the hot new thing, complete with police-friendly strongmen, wannabes, and its own website. Quote, question, IGD, the other day the police announced that they were gathering their things and leaving their precinct. What do you make of this? Answer, this, to be very honest, is anyone's guess. There are many theories around why they abandoned the precinct. Some feel that they ran out of resources. Some think that they ran out of resources. Some think that it was a politically expedient move on the mayor's part. From my perspective, this was a good move on the city's part. They were getting hammered in the press for the nightly tear gas barrages and street clashes, and the crowds never really got smaller. When an active shooter was on the scene, people rushed to the neighborhood to give support. The risks that people were facing in standing off with the cops night after night were just not the deterrent I assume the city thought it would be. Once they left the precinct, while certainly a blow to their power, the focus has been taken off of the heavily militarized police that is still lurking in the area, unquote. Quote, I have been nothing short of inspired by the crowd's ability to remain calm in the face of these aggressive maneuvers by the police. Countless videos show the crowd simply slowly falling back from advancing police lines, forming defensive lines with shields, and umbrellas, and even sometimes throwing tear gas and OC canisters back toward the police. However, it is also in these moments where some individuals have taken the opportunity to throw things at the cops, which is still incredibly unpopular in the streets, even as the police are actively attacking people." Unquote. Worthwhile read. To Hell or Utopia, from a abeautifulresistance.org by Christopher Scott Thompson. Someone who lives in Minneapolis talks about the riots there, emphasizing class over ideology or ethnicity. Fairly riot-friendly for what that's worth. Quote, As the National Guard slowly succeeded in reasserting state control over the Twin Cities, I paid a visit to the George Floyd Memorial. The atmosphere on the street was now completely different. Still revolutionary, but in a different phase. There were multiple booths offering free food and drinks. There was a small free grocery store where you could go in and take anything you needed. There were people giving speeches and people playing musical instruments. One man was even playing a grand piano in the middle of the street. Everywhere you looked, people were peacefully and happily spending time with their neighbors. Yes, there was still a pandemic, and people were still wearing masks, but after the week we'd all just lived through, this was like medicine for my heart." Unquote. Rioting in France in solidarity with anti-police uprising in the U.S. from AMW English. By now, everyone has heard about the international events in the name of so many people killed and brutalized by out-of-control police forces. This is one such protest slash riot in France. Quote, the demonstrators answered the call of the committee Truth for Adama, a young man killed by the gendarmes during his arrest in 2016. After two hours spent in front of the foul state building, a part of the demonstrators invades the periphery. Traffic is blocked and barricades are erected. Shortly after, the cops gas in droves and charge the crowd. A good thousand people leave in a wild protest on the Boulevard Berthier, Marichaux. Many shop windows are shattered on all... Avenue de Clichy, unquote. Counterinsurgency, dousing the flames of Minneapolis from Roar Magazine by Peter Gelderluz. P. 
Peter explains some of the rhetorical tactics used against rioters and anarchists in their fight for the hearts and minds of the masses, including the tropes of provocateur, outside agitator, and cop or infiltrator jacketing. Quote, However, when someone is accused of being an infiltrator, a false protester, dialogue becomes impossible because, a priori, honest communication is precluded by who they supposedly are. Those who spread this kind of accusation are actually hoping the crowd will rely on the uglier methods it has available to protect itself, beating up the supposed provocateur and handing them over to the police. This was exactly how the political parties imposed nonviolence on the Catalan independence movement in October 2017, using their massive resources to spread the rumor that police infiltrators were planning on committing violent acts in the protests. The degree of doublethink was undeniable. In the name of nonviolence, people assaulted those who began to carry out property destruction, proving that they did not logically believe such protesters were actual cops, or they never would have beat them up. Rather, the accusation of being a provocateur converted those protesters into homo sacer, people with no legitimacy or right to bodily integrity. Ironically, those who engage in this kind of snitch jacketing are doing something very similar to what Amy Cooper did in Central Park, calling the police and lying about being threatened, knowing full well that the target of her accusation faced police violence, unquote. Peter's been paying attention for a long time and writes well. It's nice to have him around. Welcome to the front lines, Beyond Violence and Nonviolence, from Chuang. The author offers up some lessons from the Hong Kong protests to people who have recently entered the streets. Quote, Hong Kong may offer one path that escapes the seeming inevitability of conflicts over violence, nonviolence, and how to engage with the forces of the state. For those who are looking for a new way to bridge gaps between militant and peaceful forms of participation, we think one of the city's most important contributions to the new era of struggles has been the development of particular roles and formations to be deployed on the streets, as well as the structures behind them that help to better link those willing to fight the cops with others in the movement. In particular, we want to highlight the concept of Hong Kong's frontliners, who not only developed many successful techniques for confronting the police, but also established a new kind of relationship between the militant and nonviolent elements of street actions through many months of experimentation, unquote. You'll have to read the article to get more of what is being referenced here, and it is well worth reading. This is an excellent partner piece to the Gelderloos counterinsurgency article, as it discusses tactics of police collaborators and the co-optation of jargon, among many other things. Includes a useful poster delineating some roles for those in protests, a useful tool for conversation as well as practice. Justice for George Floyd from Melbourne Anarchist Communist Group. A brief setting of the stage for what is going on in the U.S. and around the world before bringing it home to Australia, where indigenous folks are murdered with impunity by cops and then some ideas about how to make things better. Apparently this was before the defund and or abolish the cops became part of the dialogue. But also, in case you forgot, it's all about class. Quote, The main task of anarchists, therefore, is the same as always. We need to build rank and file organization in the workplace and turn the union movement into fighting organizations. While our duty at the moment is to join the front lines defending indigenous people here and black communities in the U.S., we must remain aware that our victory can only be achieved on another field. The fight against racism can only be won in the workplace. And the fight against racism will only be won when the working class make a revolution against capitalism, unquote. Um, Not sure why they even have anarchist in their name, actually. Fires across Mexico against police repression from Anon. Daily rundown of protests in Mexico, in Mexico City, Guadalajara, Veracruz, San Luis Potosi, and the death of a Mexican man by cop while sitting in the street. 
Quote, in the midst of this intense scenario, another case of police brutality spreads through the web, this time in Salapa, Veracruz, where a renowned serigraphist, part of the hip-hop community, Carlos Andres Navarro, alias El Aria, is detained and beaten up, subsequently dying in the confines of the police station. A video is spread which shows Carlos Andres cornered by police while he screamed, help, they want to abduct me. In the morning of June 5th, a group of unknowns go out to pull an incendiary barricade outside of the house where five years ago, a group of activist students were attacked and killed by a parapolice group. Unquote. June 11th, 2020, from june11th.noblogs.org. Celebrating, if that is the word, for the 16th year of this day of remembering and supporting anarchists serving long-term sentences. Quote, the context of June 11th this year is one in which our lives have been wrenched out of normality. A scary time, but also a time for innovation and an especially important time to remember and support our imprisoned loved ones. While calls to release people from jails, prison, and ICE detention facilities during the pandemic are growing louder and having some success, it's likely that many of our comrades' names will not be on the list for early release. Whether it's due to marginalized identities, terrorism enhancements, a history of standing up to guards in prison administration, or just being an outspoken anarchist, this means that their long sentences and already abhorrent health care and mistreatment could carry even worse consequences." Unquote. This post also has updates, Eric King, Connor Stevens, Tamara Soul, Conspiracy Cells of Fire, Anna Beniamo, Alfredo Caspito, Michael Kimball, Jeremy Hammond, Marius Mason, and Lisa of the Auction Bank Robbery. Also info about some good support services to work with or support. We want a world without cops, not another investigation from North Shore Counter Info. Another solid piece of analysis out of the tower in Hamilton. This is a response to a so-called independent report paid for by the city of Hamilton into the events of Pride 2019 when some folks chased homophobes away and were then arrested. This is entirely topical since these independent reviews are another tactic used by those people who at best are looking for reform, a band-aid on cancer, and at worst are just trying to delay until people get distracted by other problems. Quote, trying to separate the good protesters from the bad ones is a classic way police try to break whole movements, encouraging people to self-police to the point where cops consider them non-threatening, while isolating those who can't or won't self-police in order to target them with heightened repression. However, HPS perceives anarchists as having infiltrated all social movements and are hijacking their relationships with various groups as if the police need any help having a bad relationship with marginalized people. Unquote. This week's theme could certainly be keep an eye out for how these moments of uproar have been diffused and distracted in the past from wannabe politicians, a.k.a. representatives, to wannabe cops. Watch out. Advertising Anarchy from Bandelang Item by Ponkin. Definitely didn't say that right. Periodically, it will occur to someone that we could be using the master's tools. That, for example, they've learned how to be compelling, how to convince, how to get things done, and that we should learn from their tactics. That idea, that attempt to co-opt, makes sense to some extent, and even is probably unavoidable to some extent, since advertising, for example, is one of the languages we learn these days. But the line between effective communication between peers, horizontal communication, and hierarchical communication is not necessarily clear. At any rate, this piece is promoting using advertising's tools to make our messaging better, apparently without ever having seen Adbusters magazine. So, okay. Quote, narratives can be spouted from various means, and when it's at its most insidious, it is subtle. Take, for example, Marxist economist Richard Wolff talking on Fox News. 
If you're already politically radical and well-read about leftist discourse, Mr. Wolf's takes would come off pretty tame, the safest possible liberal even. But what's interesting in here is the interviewer. The tone is particularly patronizing and starts and ends with loaded language against socialism in general. The questions play into what people think socialism is, not necessarily with. The language is also particularly to note. Proletarian revolution, collectivist road, and cherry on the top? Right after this, we're going to talk about Venezuela, the collapse of socialism. Wolf's ideas aren't the intended subject here. The interviewer has complete control over the discussion. Such choice language is meant for the audience. Whatever Wolf said stopped mattering the moment Venezuela was name-dropped. Socialism equals bad, unquote. This piece does encourage people to learn more about how we're all being manipulated, especially by the media. And that is a real service. Audio and video. Elephant in the Room, conversation with anarchist from Belarus. An hour and six minutes from and.notraces.net. Much like the BAD news radio podcast, Elephant in the Room talks to international anarchists about current events, anarchist actions, and general anti-authoritarianism. This particular episode deals with the effects of COVID-19 in Belarus, which, being somewhere one rarely hears about in anarchist media, is almost interesting enough in itself. Unfortunately, most of the conversation centers around government response and lack of response to the pandemic, the plight of Belarusian workers, the response of businesses to quarantine, etc. The only time the interviewer specifically asks about anarchist reactions to the pandemic is with literally three minutes left in the interview. So kind of a letdown. I did, however, enjoy the interviewee's anti-isolation stance, noting both that explicitly calling for widespread isolation isn't super anarchist and reminding us that isolation also kills. June 11th, 2020, Marius Mason support and words from Jeremy Hammond. An hour and a half from Final Straw. On the first of two June 11 specials this week, Final Straw interviews Marius Mason support crew member Letha and anarchist hacker slash prisoner Jeremy Hammond. Letha goes over the details of Marius's case, the horrible health conditions in prisons, which have only been made worse by the pandemic, and the fact that Marius is limited to an approved list of 100 people whom they can write to, though they can adjust that list. They also tell the adorable and cripplingly sad story of their first involvement with supporting Marius, specifically reporting back on Marius's cats whom Letha adopted after Marius was locked up. Next is an interview with anarchist hacker and prisoner Jeremy Hammond. Hammond drives home the atrocious health conditions in prison, specifically mentioning the fact that because he is housed in an overflow transfer station, prisoners have no chance of privacy, let alone social distancing. Hammond also talks about the podcast he hosts with his twin brother, Twin Trouble, which may soon be reposted to an anarchist news site near you. Looting is Wealth Redistribution, 26 minutes from COVID-19 Chronicles, which is apparently a project by lefty French filmmaker Frank Barat. Here he interviews anarchist author Peter Gelderloos on the recent rebellions in America, outside agitators, and violence in general. This interview provides another example of the tension authors ride when they become the anarchist non-anarchists turn to when things pop off around the world. On the one hand, it's awesome to see Peter out there talking about anarchy and the traps movements like this often fall into. But on the other, it's always uncomfortable when someone is made into the anarchist voice. Beyond that, Peter does his usual failure of nonviolence shtick, which focuses a little too much on riots accomplishing civil rights laws for my taste. The ex-worker number 78, June 11th, two hours and two minutes from CrimeThink. Part two of the June 11th block this week. This episode also includes an interview with Letha, a member of Marius Mason's support team, and anarchist, quote, fellow traveler, unquote, David Campbell. Campbell was locked up in 2018 after fighting outside an alt-right event in New York City. 
Although he was initially optimistic about his case, David eventually took an 18-month non-cooperating plea after being charged with gang assault, which, quote, makes any group of three or more people involved in a fight legally responsible for each other's actions and carries a steep mandatory minimum of 3.5 years, unquote. Also interviewed is a member of Campbell's support crew who details the health conditions on Rikers Island and mentions the hunger strike David helped to organize there, which you can read about in his article on hardcrackers.com. This week's podcast was sound edited by Greg. The What's New was written and read by Chisel and Greg. To learn more, anarchist and anti-political books, pamphlets, and other material are available at littleblackheart.com. For news by and or about anarchists and up-to-the-minute commentary, see you at anarchistnews.org and or the Anarchist News IRC chat room linked on anews and anarchy101.org is back. Go and have a chat. <laughs>